So this whole Beats thing, I was at an airport yesterday coming back from Oslo. I was at Oslo Airport and I was at Copenhagen Airport, which is a really nice airport. It's massive. Never been. I did that thing where, because I had a couple of hours between flights. Yeah. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to walk the, you know, the halls. Mm-hmm. I'll go and find a spot with a PowerPoint. And there's lots at Copenhagen Airport, which is really nice. You can That's nice. Plug next to it, which is, you know, I don't know what British airport's all about, but is there a, I mean, is there a, like a, a shortage of PowerPoints? British airports, the only thing they seem to focus on is uh, cheap, nasty breakfast food and, uh, and pints available from 6am onwards. I think that's the only thing that British airports seem to focus on, in my experience. You could not move your eyes without, without finding a PowerPoint in Copenhagen. I mean, they're everywhere. Every seat seemed to have them. Um, I mean, you do that thing at British airports where you walk into, let's say, the Weatherspoons or whatever the place where you're buying your cheap breakfast. And <laughs> what everybody does, every geek anyway does, is before you find a place to sit, you do the scan. Yeah, find out where the cleaners plug the hoover in. Yes, exactly. Or you find out if there's a light or maybe a cigarette machine that you can unplug. (laughs) I've done that before. Yeah. Sitting there eating my overpriced sausage. And and then somebody comes along to, like, oh, they're trying the machine. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) good luck, good luck. Not going to unplug this, baby. Or the other thing which you can steal the power from is the massage chairs. Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah, good. the vibrating massage chair. So what you can do is you can actually sit in the vibrating massage chair, not vibrating because you're just about to unplug it. And then you unplug the vibrating massage chair and plug in your laptop and it's, and then you get a comfy seat and you get power. Bonus. You're a professional. You've done this before. I think it's Terminal 5 at Heathrow. Yeah, they've got loads of them. It wasn't Terminal 5. I was going to Australia a mm-hmm. few years ago and I got to the, um, to the airport fairly early. As I, I like to do. No, I like to do. I mean, I was at Oslo Airport two hours before I needed to be yesterday. Because I just thought, <laughs> well, you know, I could either sit around the hotel. Yeah, you've got to wait somewhere. So you might as well wait close to your destination. I could wander aimlessly around Oslo. Or I could, you know, just get to the airport, which is what I did. And go steal some electricity. There's power everywhere. I mean, it's just incredible. But when I went to Australia, I remember it was just... I forget which terminal it was at... Um, uh, Heathrow. It wasn't Terminal 5. And there was just no PowerPoints. There was like literally no PowerPoints. And if there was one, you'd find a group of businessmen sitting on the floor all gathered around it going, can I have a bit now? All swapping blackberries around. Yeah, so right down by the gate, there was nobody else around. There was a PowerPoint on the floor in the corridor. And I just sat there. There was nobody else around. I just sat there, plugged my laptop in. Yeah. And next thing I know, security guy comes along and says, oh, sorry, you can't, uh, you can't use that. And I'm like, <laughs> What? He said health and safety. Well, geez, yeah, I mean, you've not read out all these um, these plugs at airports just, you know, taking entire cities off the grid. I said, well, what? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, there's no lead. People can't, you know, trip over it or anything like that. You know, I'm, I'm sitting on the, the, the power lead. He went, yeah, your laptop's not been tested. Oh, brilliant. So, you know, apparently they have to test every hoover that they ever plug into it and put one of those little silver stickers yeah. to say that it's been tested. And, of course, my laptop, my MacBook Pro that was, like, you know, straight out of the box, that didn't comply. Yeah, there's no way you're going to be putting a sticker on your brand-new MacBook. No, but I've seen people do it. I was on a train going down to London once and, I don't know, somewhere boring like... Well, I was going to say Milton Keynes, but I know lots of nice people in Milton Keynes, so I won't <laughs> say Milton Keynes. I'll yeah, say Northampton. Right, OK. 
or maybe Stafford. Do I know anybody that gets on at Stafford? Probably not. It's really boring. No one gets on at Stafford. Actually, I think Trevor Morris lives in Stafford. I don't know anything about Stafford. But apart from Trevor Morris, people get on at Stafford. This guy got on wherever it was anyway, and he's got a big fake leather black laptop bag. Right. Which it probably made by Targus or something like that. God, I'm such a snob. I can't help it. I just can't help it. You're just the man with taste, Andy. It's not your fault. He probably got it given or picked it up in PC World. I don't know. And he's he... probably carrying it the opposite way around so you couldn't see like a, a big corporate conference logo on the other side of it. Oh, he's heaved this laptop out of the bag. And I swear to God, this thing must have been two inches thick. Brilliant. <laughs> it was massive. It had every port on it that you can possibly think of. And... You know, I don't know what it is with PC laptops. Maybe they're different now than they than they were when this guy bought one, right? But the design decisions that they made were just incredible. Like, for example, this thing was so f- thick because they had like a full size VGA lead, whatever the, the thing, or a serial bus. Do you remember this? We yeah. used to connect mice with a serial bus. Yeah, old school printers and mice and stuff. But it. A parallel port or something like that. But this thing was vertical. And all of the USB <laughs> ports right, were vertical, which there was space for them to go horizontal. But it's a massive. This thing was absolutely massive. And he creaked the lid open. It literally went like some heavy metal door. Horrible coffin. On the lid of this laptop were about nine of those health and safety stickers. Yeah. I reckon what it is, corporate laptops are always the same. Big, clunky, very plastic, like just really cheap, tacky, nasty plastic. They're usually a, a Lenovo ThinkPad, I think they're called, and they've got that red, that red button in the middle of the keyboard. I reckon they look so so that no one's going to steal them. Well, we could do an entire show about that, really, couldn't we? Reckon we could. If you wonder, by the way, if you can hear like a humming in the background... I've just noticed, because it's a Saturday morning. We, I normally record on a Friday afternoon, mm-hmm. and it's very quiet. But I've been away, so we're recording this on Saturday morning. Nice and early. And nice and my next-door neighbour has decided to mow the lawn. See, I can't hear a humming your end, but at my end, I live... Well, as you know, you've been to my house. live on the river. You can hear boats chugging up and down. So if you can hear humming my end, it's uh, inconsiderate, leisurely folks. Well, I'm not going to do what I did last time, which is to lean out of the window and say, I'm trying to record a radio programme, don't you know? Don't you know some of us are trying to work? So, anyway, you and me, we've got a lot of a lot to live up to this week. Harry Roberts. Oh, uh, God, yes, yes. Last week's show was phenomenal. I'm glad that you didn't interrupt the professional part of the show. Yeah, no, straight away. Just ploughed straight in, didn't he? Straight down the middle of it. There's no holding him back. That's the thing about Paul, though, isn't it? Well, I do try to make this show sound professional. It doesn't always happen. It's like... Pushing a piece of string up the stairs with some guests, I can tell you. Well, I'm sure you can. Now, speaking of stairs, Sue fell down the home office stairs this week while I was away. Not cool. Is she all right? Um, actually, she's very bruised. Oh, shouldn't, yeah. shouldn't chuckle. But she literally t- tripped or slipped on the top step. We've got, like, 12 steps of oh, a wooden staircase. Yeah, it's an old house as well, so I bet they're really steep. Uh, yeah, they are really, really steep, because it's not a proper staircase. It's like almost like a ladder. <laughs> oh, you really shouldn't laugh. Literally, no, no, must not laugh, because she slipped on the top step, 
and then literally did that thing. It could have been a comedy thing where you literally bounced on her back all the way down to the bottom. It's like, oh, oh. brutal. You said home office. You've got new premises now, haven't you? Well, we, when I say new premises, we have a, um, a nice tidy office in St. Asaph, and it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really nice. I saw the pictures. It looks really cool. Congratulations. Mm. Well, it's, it's, it's small, but it, it does us for now. Yeah, nice. But I used to joke with clients when they used to come to, to the office at home, and they say, watch the stairs because we're not insured. <laughs> As they're going down, they're like, oh, we'll take extra care. Brilliant. I used to play jokes on health and safety people that they would phone up because you get this occasionally. You get cold callers that pick up the phone and uh, they'd want to sort of talk to you about your health and safety compliance or something like that. Yeah. This is it. Can I speak to the person who's responsible for your health and safety? And I'm saying, I'm really, I'm sorry she's not available right now. I said, oh, when she might be available? Well, I'm sorry she's in hospital. It could be three months. <laughs> and they go, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Even if they didn't ask what happened, I'd go, yeah, it was such a tragedy because, um, I'm afraid she, she she fell down the stairs. And they went, oh. And you could see them getting interested at this point now, thinking health and safety. Somebody fell down the stairs. I said, yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. She, should, uh, because- she shouldn't have been up there with the uh, the hedge trimmer uh, in, <laughs> no. indoors. But, you know. What I used to say was, yeah, I know, it's really bad because you know, we've got this water feature like at the bottom of the stairs. And she fell down and literally landed face down <sighs> in this water feature. And they go, oh, no. I go, yeah, and it doesn't end there because she grabbed hold of anything that she could grab onto to stop her from falling and she caught this big light this big standard lamp that we've got near there and the lamp fell in there with her and um and well and they go oh she only fell because you know the uh the wire that i trailed from one room to the other in order to uh you know to take the power drill to to my laptop um she just tripped to that she wasn't looking where she was going she was carrying uh eight boxes of ring binders um which she probably shouldn't have been doing on her own she's keeping going for ages the fact that the power lead was actually caught around the dog. Dog was chasing uh, the the two cats around, and uh, well, the kid was antagonising them. So you know, these things happen. You probably you're too young to remember, but back in I can't believe it was this long ago, 2005. I wrote a whole series of blog posts about having fun with cold callers. Brilliant. I'll put some links in the show notes. Yeah. But you used to get people that would phone up, and you know they try and sell you kitchens or telephone services. Bruce Lawson does this quite a bit, doesn't he? Have you seen his... Uh, Bruce has got some recordings of talk, uh, talking to insurers, cold callers. No, oh. he sent me some links to this and I put them in the notes. I haven't heard those. They're absolute gold. I wish I had the uh, the guts to do something similar myself. I just get too polite. Oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm just, I am just I end up listening to them for half an hour and then apologising for not being interested. I wish I had the uh, the guts to have fun with these people. No, I used to wind them up all the time. They'd phone up and they'd want to sell you double glazing. And they'd be, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have any windows. And they'd go, what? And you go, yeah, I live in a caravan. And what we do is brilliant, this actually. What we do is, you know that, uh, that p- clear plastic stuff that you used to wrap up parcels on a pallet? Yeah, yeah. We just kind of, you know, wrap that around the caravan. It's great. And then when the windows get dirty, we can just, like, cut it off. Take it off, start it. again. And then we're like, oh, Okay. And you would say something so ridiculous that they really wouldn't know how to react to it. Yeah. So I'll put some links in the show notes, but I don't know whether it's we've got on one of these kind of no-call lists, but we don't seem to get too many of those anymore. Before we get too far into our conversation, I just want to do a sponsor. Cool. Who have we got? Well, our first sponsor is Hover, and they really are the best way to buy and to manage your domain names. And I know that because when I like, when I started using Hover, I liked the experience so much that I just recommend them to all my clients now. 
Mm-hmm. Every time somebody says, oh, we need a new domain name, it's like, just go to Hover. It's an interesting market, I find. Domain names, it's really easy to do obnoxiously. Like, domain name providers could be in the realm of, uh, you know, recruiters or estate agents. And it's always dead nice when you find a domain name provider who's just a nice company, who just make it easy. And I guess hover are those guys. Well, I mean, I run a small business, so I don't want... I don't want something to, you know, get in my way. I want something that should be simple, something like buying or managing domain names mm-hmm. to not distract me from what I do best and what makes us the money. You know, I don't need unnecessary complications. I just want the process to be smooth and simple and I want help quickly if I've got a problem or a question. And I don't want a domain registrar just to squeeze every last penny out of me at every opportunity. You know what the process of buying domain names is like typically. It's terrible. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Years and years and years ago, we registered a handful of domain names with a company here in the UK. And for several reasons, I now want to put some who is privacy on those domains. Yeah. Well, it turns out that that registrar, they want to charge me for privacy. Yeah, that's common, isn't it? Every year, an annual fee for domain privacy. And they even want me to pay a fee if I want to transfer those domain names out to another company who don't charge. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not cricket, is it? So Hover's different. With them, who is privacy is included for free on every domain that supports it. That's impressive. That's nice. Not.co.uk's though, if you are a business, if you are a UK individual, you can get domain privacy on your co.uk. But if you are a business, you can't. That's something I learnt. I guess that makes sense in, in certain ways. Probably some uh, legislation kind of stuff around that somewhere. No idea. But when I asked Hover for support, a real live person got back to me almost immediately with information about how to move those domains. And that's something that I really love about Hover. They take all the hassle and the friction out of registering a domain name. And if you've got a bunch of domain names at one particular registrar or even several, and you want to consolidate them all with Hover, they have this brilliant valet transfer service. And they make it really easy for you to move your domains. You just give them the login details to your control panel and they will go in there and do all the settings changes for you. They'll even make sure all the DNS stays correct so your sites go, don't go down. And amazingly, there's no charge. They just That's take incredible. care of everything for you. It's unbelievable. Well, that kind of thing is worth paying for as well. So to get it for free is... Uh... That's impressive. So there's I, so I... much that I could say about Hover and why I like using them. I just think you should use Hover. You should give them a try. Go to unfinished.bz slash Hover and start using Hover. I think I shall. I buy quite a few domains now. And and it's just for how quickly you snap domains up, for how quickly and easily we think about buying them, the process is usually way too drawn out. It's not really... Yeah, it's, it's, the process is longer than it should be for buying something so simple. So yeah, I'll uh, I'll give Hover a look. No, you should. They're my favourite. So before we get back into our topic, there's one more thing that I just want to quickly talk about. And we both know about this because we've both invested some time and some energy into this as well. And that's who's it and what's it? Who's it and what's it? I know. World Takeover. To be honest, it sounds a bit like a company from a carry-on film. Yeah, yeah. Or... Who's it and what's it, Matron? You think Sid James should be in charge of it or something? Or it could be... She looks a bit like Sid James. She does not look anything like Sid James. <laughs> it could be from a PG Tips advert from the 1970s. Remember this one? It's like, cooey, Mr. Shifter. 
Well, I, I know that one very well because we got drunk and watched it a few times. We have to. We have. <laughs> this is this is people an insight into our lives that people don't know is that we sit and get drunk and watch old tea adverts. No, we don't. We fly all over the world and speak at conferences and, and you know, drink expensive cocktails. No, we're really very boring. Yeah, um, it's true. There's obviously, I think there's a falling downstairs theme to this show because um, the, the one well, my favourite anyway, my favourite is when the piano falls down the stairs. That's so good. <laughs> Um, I should put a link. To, I should put the audio. I should cut the audio in. Um, but it's funny because in that ad, the Mister Shifter ad, the actual removal company is called A Shifter. Yeah, yeah. Which is really cool. In fact, I did when I googled Mister Shifter, thinking, oh, I wonder whether anybody's got that. Um, people are way ahead of me because there's actually three companies I found removal companies that are all called Mister Shifter. Ah. Uh. You go to MisterShifter.com, which is in London in Park Royal. Or you've got mrshifter.co.uk in Swindon. How do these people, like, do you think they have a reciprocal arrangement? How do you mean? Well, you know, if, if, if somebody gets the wrong Mr. Shifter, you go, oh, oh you don't yeah. want us, you want the guys in London. Yeah, they probably look out for each other. They've got that solidarity, the shifter solidarity. There's Mr. Shifter removals up here in North Wales as well. Brilliant. Yeah, because I think the whole topic of that evening was that adverts had a bit of a legacy back then. You know, they were, just, oh, I think, just different to what they are now. I'd never seen any of them. I'd seen some of the later PG Tips adverts. Yeah, they weren't as good in the 80s. No, the early ones were definitely the best. But I always think Who's It and What's It sounds like one of those. It's Because like, they always had the best character names in carry-on films. Yeah. And, ah, uh, oh, man, there's just a bit of creativity to it. And what is Who's It and What's It? Well, it's a physical space. Indeed, very, very physical. It's an absolutely massive physical space that is designed to support and showcase the work of independent designers from wherever they are around the world. Yeah, completely global. And you can find out about it actually at whositandwhatsit.com. That's the best place to start. And basically, what Whosit wants to do is they will take designers' work, and this can be everything. It could be prints, furniture, um, home accessories, all this kind of stuff. Anything, anything designed, basically, isn't it? Anything that's designed. And their business model is really interesting because... It's really affordable. It's just from £30 a month. And then the designer, somebody that's actually made the product, they get their products for sale on the high street and they get all of the profits. Who's it wants it? Don't take anything off the top line. Exactly. It's amazing. You design some amazing, beautiful furniture. You send it to Who's It and What's It's massive four-story shop. You spend £30 a month and for that month you just get the product showcased and sold to the general public who pop in. And, uh, yeah, yeah, you keep all the profits. That's my favourite thing. You keep all the profits. We were learning recently about uh, how big retail works and um, department stores take up to 90% of the profits. So the people in charge of actually coming up with designing, producing the products take home 10%. And, you know, the agent, if you like, they keep 90% of the profits. 90%. I really love not just the business model idea behind this, but I also love the fact that it's actually somebody that we know. It's Naomi Atkinson that's behind this. And I just really love to support creative people who are trying out new and different ideas. And we some do this might with, say outrageous. Some, some might say completely start raving bonkers. But we like to think about disruption in the, you know, the software industry or in technology or something like that. Well, this is sort of disruptive in retail 
Mm, and yeah. I really like this idea. The building um, up in Newcastle is incredible. It's a really impressive four-story building right on the quayside in Newcastle on time. A beautiful location, isn't it? Beautiful. It's a fabulous location. And in a, in a hell of a state right now, or has been in a, in a hell of a state in the past. I mean, I was up there with you, what, a couple of months ago? A couple of months back. You were one of our, one of our best contractors, I think. Well, we spent a weekend just basically knocking seven bells out of the top floor. Yeah, swinging the sledgehammers. It was fantastic. I mean, you can just get all your aggression out by swinging the sledgehammer. <laughs> I just think that it's a, a really, really wonderful project, and it's such a daring idea that I think that we should support it in some way. Yeah, big time. I think I'm, we might be popping back up there in the next few weeks, and, uh, and any excuse to swing a sledgehammer, basically. Well, you should do. What's happening right now is that Naomi and her backers have got so far with putting their own money into the project and with their own energy. But now, really, it needs a little bit of wider help. Yeah. So what they've done is they've actually started an Indiegogo campaign, which uh, starts now and finishes on the 13th of October. And you can find out more at unfinished.bz slash www. That's just a little short URL to make it easy to, to find the, uh, the Indiegogo URL. They really need your help. I mean, whether it's a small donation, whether it's a, you know, a fiver or something more, they're actually doing some really interesting things where they've got people to contribute some time. For example, Ashley Baxter yes. is going to be doing a photography workshop. I'm going to buy that one. I'm going to uh, hopefully go on Ashley's photography workshop. Yeah, no, I'm going to be doing exactly the same. So there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can support. You know, you can just sort of drop a fiver or you can buy a ticket to one of the events that they're going to be doing on one of the floors of the building. And it's just a really nice thing to do. And uh, I won't say any more about it now. I've probably waxed on enough. But I just like the idea of supporting creative people doing creative things. And I think we should see that for each other. It's important. I think it comes it's sort of slightly piggybacks uh, last week's topic there are so many people out there who just they just really genuinely enjoy helping each other and it's it's fantastic to see yeah we hear about all the bad stuff all the time like you and paul were saying last week but um i just think this this kind of new business model is about helping other people and it's it's all fairly reciprocal well, unfinished.bz slash www, that's a link to the Indiegogo campaign. And there's a video on there. You can see the space. You can see the plans. So everything's kind of outlined on that. As I said at the beginning, we've got quite a lot to live up to, I think. Yeah, we really do. Because I think last week's show, I think it was probably one of the best ones that we've ever done. And I would be tempted to agree with you there. I mean, it's difficult for me because there's been so many good people to talk to and we've talked about so many things. I mean, you know, and how can you not like the Apes episodes? I mean, it's what people come to Unfinished Business for, isn't it? They want to find out the latest on Planet of the Apes. Yeah, Unfinished Apeness. But last week was, was an interesting one because, like I said at the beginning, I usually plan guests, you know, a few weeks in advance. And rather than thinking about the person and then what the topic's going to be you know be a bit like thinking oh it'd be good to get harry roberts on oh but what should we talk to harry about well he likes you know he likes um css so we'll talk about css which is what i think a lot of people will do you yeah. know they, they, they pick a guest and then find a topic which makes things more kind of interviewee mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely i 
try to think of it the other way around. I try to think of it, well, well, what could a topic be? And then who would be a good person to talk to about that? And I had this bee in my bonnet a little bit about, you know, about briefs and about client expectations and about the buying process. And we'll talk about this a little bit later on today because mm-hmm. I've been writing about it this week. Yeah, I saw you shared some uh, Ogilvy stuff. Yeah, well, I'll come on to that. And then, you know, sort of like the day before I was supposed to record with Paul, you know, I was feeling a little bit kind of melancholy. And we just threw the notes out of the window and talked about how we felt about things, I think. Yeah, it was a fantastic format. Like I said, you know, a little warm-up before we started recording, you know, the whole, uh, I actually thought you were in the same room because it just felt like a nice fly on the wall. Two people just, you know, you might as well have been sat over a pint just discussing stuff. Fantastic format. It was difficult because, you know, there's so much that we, I think we wanted to say, but we were conscious of the, of the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, yeah, we were also conscious that, you know, we might be sometimes in danger of kind of treading on, uh, you know, treading into kind of sensitive territory. Yes. Yeah. Um, whether it be kind of politically or personally or something like that. So I think we were both kind of being, we were trying to be open, but, you know, there was a little bit of caginess. You have to be cautious, basically, don't you? When you're discussing certain things in this industry, in any industry, it can be quite sensitive. But I was really, really quite overwhelmed, actually, by the amount of support and comments. I mean, I think we've had more comments about that show than we've had from anything prior. Um, The number of tweets and, you know, I would say 99.9% supportive tweets people saying you know really lovely things i mean that made me very happy this week that's good and so, i yeah, wonder I've got some uh, big boots to fill this week haven't i well you're a big fella <laughs> bigger than mr bag but i think that we i want to talk a little bit more about some of those topics from last week yeah definitely and also i think that the direction that I maybe want to be taking the show in is to make it a little bit more philosophical sometimes. Um, I mean, there's, you know, plenty of interview shows and plenty of shows that talk about CSS and what's going on in the latest, um, you know, the latest frameworks or technology. Mm-hmm. And this to me is a much more kind of human, you know, much more human industry than maybe, you know, maybe we sometimes remember. Yeah. Well, like you said last week, um, you know, we tend to be, characterized by our work so we often don't really see that there's uh, actually a person behind the css or the conference appearances so i do think focusing on the human aspect can just be a real interesting and fairly powerful insight for a lot of people i think that it's been really heartening to see people sharing how they've been feeling about things i mean not in some kind of overwhelmingly self-pitiful kind of way yeah there's a limit oh, woe is me, and, you know, please kind of stroke my sensitive ego on Twitter. Not that kind of thing. But people genuinely saying, listen, I'm having a really hard time about this. And people have contacted me privately, actually, you know, off Twitter and said, you know, I'm I'm, I'm really glad that you talked about some of those things, you know, about how you were feeling in terms of the, and I hate to, you know, wrap it up in the whole imposter syndrome aspect but you know this whole kind of crisis of confidence and you know not really knowing where you fit or where you're going kind of place mm-hmm. um and people going you know, i've been feeling exactly the same yeah i think it's a huge problem with our industry because we you know essentially live our lives fairly publicly you know uh, 
Twitter, blog posts, yeah. That we have probably, we probably have more conferences than all other industries combined. And I just think there's this almost expectation we've got to keep up some bravado, you know. Oh, business is always perfect and I'm always happy because why wouldn't I be? And I think it just takes a few people to say that, no, do you know what? Business hasn't been great. Maybe, you know, the economy isn't doing too well. Or maybe sometimes I just don't feel like working. And it's, I think it's really important and it's been quite interesting seeing that kind of stuff come out and people being like, oh, oh it's okay to feel like this. It's not just me. I do worry sometimes that for me to turn around and go, you know, I've had a terrible couple of weeks from a kind of an industry point of view from, you know, you and I talking or me and Paul talking, um, and you know, several thousand people listening, that seems to be okay. But from a company point of view, Mm. if I was putting my business head on, I'd be thinking that's a terrible thing to admit because somebody's paying you for those weeks. Yeah. I think we're about to agree on this point. I think you've definitely, if you've, especially if you're self-employed or you work for, you know, you're a, you own a company, you really need to be careful about what kind of laundry you're airing. Because even if it's true, you know, it's not necessarily what a client wants to hear, prospective clients, you know, someone who might be getting in touch for some work and they see a tweet about, oh, I'm sick of this industry. It's like, oh, well, I'm not going to hire you then because obviously your heart's not in it. So I do think there's a real interesting fine line that needs to be tread. Well, this is something that I didn't get round to talking about on the show with Paul last week because you know, we just ran out of time. You know, we were like an hour and a half. But he is very much of the opinion that we should share problems. And when we do, people will step up and, and help with them. Mm-hmm. And saying, you know, I'm having a really hard time and that's, that's one thing. But, you know, if, if I'm an employer, in fact, this happened, actually, we've been, um, we've been thinking about taking on an apprentice. Cool. And, you know, one of the first things that I did was to say, what's your Twitter? Not because, you know, I wanted to kind of eavesdrop on this person, but because, you know, you, you learn an awful lot about somebody from what they say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I wanted to be finding out whether or not this person was, you know, potentially complaining about a past employer or... Uh, talking about work in, 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 in an inappropriate way, publicly, yeah. something like that, because that's very important to me. No, yeah, it's important to everyone, or, or I think it should be. There's you know, things like um, freelancers like settling disputes or approaching disputes by tweeting about so-and-so company didn't pay me, or putting up a holding page, this site's offline because so-and-so hasn't paid their web designer. And and there's stuff like that, or uh, tweeting a uh, nightmare client, you know, 10 revisions in the last three hours, blah, blah, blah. And I think that, yeah, that stuff happens to everyone, but that stuff should be dealt with privately between, you know, whichever parties are involved. Oh, no, absolutely. And But the perception that people have of you or the impression that you give, I think, can be incredibly important. I mean, there's me just checking out this potential apprentice's Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm absolutely sure that... Because we don't have much of a separation between, you know, personality and business. It is the business in for a lot of us, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, people deal with people. And, you know, even though we are a company... People want to hire Andy Clark. Well, they, 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 they want to hire the Suzmore these days. But hmm. somebody would look at our Twitter feed um, or they'd look at my Twitter feed. And although you don't want to have a, a Twitter account which is full of just kind of meaningless business 
PR bunk. Top 10 ways to improve your email campaign. Well, I, actually, I was, that's really me my next tweet, to be honest. <laughs> it seems like your kind of thing, that, Andrew. But you see, you, you do see this. I do look at some of our kind of uh, local friends in the industry, and they will have blogs and they'll have uh, Twitter accounts, which will be filled of that, full of exactly that kind of stuff. Mm. Oh, you know, new uh, Magento plugin. Let's write about that. You know, or something yeah. like that. And they, I know that they're doing it just to keep the blog full of something or their Twitter feed full of something. Um, that's not what we do. You know, we do have, you know, I, I think I retweeted uh, Cole Henley's <laughs> Tories tweet yesterday. <laughs> right, I must have missed that one. On the, on the way back from, from Copenhagen. So I kind of don't mind that. I don't mind somebody, a potential client, seeing that because, you know, we've all got an opinion about something. Yeah, and it's, it's the personality. People don't want to hire a faithless business, but at the same time, they don't want to hire a business that's headed up by someone who tweets about doing Jaeger bombs at, like, 4 a.m. on a Tuesday. No, no, exactly that. And that's why I am wary of oversharing, because I'm wary of uh, the potential impression that it gives clients. Big time. If, and I think that that's the, the difference between me and, let's say, Paul, is that I imagine that there's much more of a separation between him and Headscape. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, bigger company and everything else. Well, it's interesting. Um, so you discussed uh, Dan uh, Edwards' blog post last week. Yes. About, you know, was it, uh, wading through treacle. That's it. If, if I'm allowed to be critical... Um, Dan Edwards as well, lovely guy. I've met him in person. He's really, really nice, very talented guy. But when I read his post, a part of me did think that if a, if a client's looking for a designer and he finds this and sees that, you know, you're just falling out of love with your profession, would a prospective client think, well, maybe we should head elsewhere? Maybe we need to find someone who's really caring, who's really passionate, who actually wants to put their all into our project? So I was a bit conflicted that, yeah, everyone feels like that from time to time. It's bound to happen. But I was sort of also thinking from a business point of view, that's not something I would necessarily share just because is, is that the message to give to, to potential clients? And for me, probably not. Don't know what your thoughts are on that. It's a really good point And it's a really fine line. I think that we have to draw at the end of the day, I suppose, a creative person. I mean, Dan is a very creative person. He's a brilliant, brilliant designer. Fantastic designer, isn't he? Um, oh, God, I hate that guy. <laughs> hate his talent. Nothing that he produces doesn't just land on the screen or land on the page by itself. It comes from him and it comes from his creativity. Yeah. And that's something which, you know, you don't just sort of turn up to work and, and, and go into onto autopilot and turn this stuff out. That creative endeavour requires a lot of energy. Yeah, it does. And and the output is formed by so much as well. You know, having a bad day could cause you to make some decisions which may be brilliant for a design. You know, there's so much behind the output as well. And yeah, and a mixture of emotions will will affect that output. So I think that from his point of view, it probably won't do him any harm because he is that of that very kind of artistic uh, temperament, and I wouldn't class him as a jobbing designer. I think yeah. that you know his output is very much tied to his energy levels and his state of mind. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and actually I would certainly still hire him, but I would want to say, Look, is it a good time? How are you feeling? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or what can we do to inspire you, yeah. you know, to do the brilliant work that, that we know that you can do? Yeah, you're totally right. You know, if you've got a client, a potential client who is, because let's not forget that clients are equally human. You know, they, they could just sort of see that, and you're totally right, be in touch along the lines of, hey, look, we read this, we really love your work, but, yeah, you know, in light of this, are you taking new projects on? So, yeah, yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, we do this weekly working routine, mm. and it's worked out incredibly well for us. Um, but there have been occasionally times when I've been working on a design for something, and it just doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, I'll work for three or four days during the course of a week and it just doesn't work. It doesn't happen for me for some reason. Maybe I get, you know, distracted or I'm tired or something. And, you know, I've had to say to clients, I'm just going to have to roll this into another week. I know we've got a schedule, but, you know, what I've got for you after three or four days, I'm just not happy to, I'm not just not happy to give you. Yeah. And actually people really appreciate that. I think even if it's bad news, honesty always trumps everything else doesn't it clients much rather have an honest reason for a late project than a crap thing on time well i just feel like what i do matters to me and i want i just not just necessarily people to be happy because you know i can make something and people will be happy but that doesn't necessarily mean that i feel that i've done my best mm-hmm. and sometimes if if it feels too easy, I sometimes feel that there's something wrong. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and if I show something to a client and they, you know, they really like it on the first or the second revision, I just think that was too easy. Well, it was too easy. No, that's interesting. I will know that there's so f- much more that maybe I can take it. And sometimes you can give that, and because you've got the time and the budget to, you know, to carry on working. And sometimes you don't. But I need to feel as if I've given it my absolute all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's not to say, I have, you know, in all honesty, it's not to say that you can do that on every project because sometimes you don't have the budget and it really isn't that inspiring. Yeah, and there's sometimes when you're a client, just, just need something functional, it works, and maybe they don't need, like I said, they might have the budget or even the requirements for that kind of stuff. Every project is different, isn't it? So you can't. I guess I imagine your mood project to project would vary greatly as well. Yeah, but you're right about this kind of perception thing because you. I think that the honesty side of things that Paul was talking about is really important and I completely get and, and want to be open and honest with everybody about, about stuff. Mm. Um, but there are times at which I think you have to put your game face on. Especially when you are self-employed. Someone like me, for example, I, I am the business here. It's just me. And I do consultancy, so it's all about me coming into your business. So it's, I'm not really a, a provider as such or a supplier. I'm more of a, just an extra limb to what businesses I go into. So for me, I, you know, making sure that everything I do reflects business and isn't kind of detrimental to that, you've really got to be careful about things you put out there. I, I guess. I mean, for example, I'm privileged here or whatever, but I've not had any quiet time since I've been working for myself. I've not had, you know, no work coming in. It's been absolutely fantastic. 
but if I was quiet, I would never turn to Twitter and I, I, I would be very, very unlikely to tweet, oh, no work lined up for the next few months, get in touch if you want something. You don't think so? I don't, I don't see any harm in that, actually. Well, I don't, I don't think it's universally bad, but for me, I, I am the kind of person who, and maybe I'm making a rod for my own back, or maybe it's just entirely my problem, but I'm the kind of person who does, well, keep appearances, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I've got to be sort of wary of perception because, you know, I have been around for a while and people often do know, you know my name for and the company name for, for good or bad. Hmm. And sometimes, actually, sometimes I'll have people will say, oh, well, you know, we didn't ask you because we thought you'd be busy. Or I'll get emails from people going, I know you're incredibly busy. Well, actually, you know, I might not be. Hmm. And we also get people that will say, oh, well, I didn't think about asking you because, you know, I thought you'd be too expensive. Yeah. Because of, you know, because of the, uh, the, the past stuff that I've done. So actually, I don't mind the idea of saying, you know, I've got, I've got a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, I don't think I've done it, but I've, I've said, well, I've certainly done it in terms of podcast sponsorship. You know, I'm certainly saying we've got a, we've got an empty couple of weeks if you want to promote something. But I guess, I guess you and I are in a similar position that we've never actually done it because I don't think we've, had to. And maybe if it came to it, I wouldn't see any problem with saying, yeah. And we do a lot of work with people. I'm just sort of rolling into a, a monthly contract now with a, with a new, with a client that we've been working with for about six weeks on and off. Mm-hmm. And we're about to start going one week a month with them, which is, you know, I, I like the idea of, of having a couple of clients that we do that regularly with rather than it being, you know, constantly new projects. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those people, came to me because 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 they know who i am and um and i and i did a little talk in manchester and it's brilliant i really like working with these guys so i think that it's important and i don't think there's anything wrong in in saying free in two or three weeks if if you need any design work or you need any coding work or you know if you want some help with php or ruby or whatever then well they wouldn't come to me but they might go <laughs> to somebody else i think there's nothing wrong with that at all that no, kind of no. honesty, I really don't mind. Because at the end of the day, to be honest, it's just advertising, isn't it? It is. Well, that's the interesting thing as well, because um, yeah, you go on my site and it's very geared towards advertising myself. And in, you know, in, in things I write, I say things about I am accepting projects for Q4. So I'm still sort of saying that I am free or, or, or like taking on work in Q4. But um, I don't know, maybe it's just a very me thing. I've got a lot of uh, interesting oddities and quirks about my personality and i think maybe this is just a, a harry thing and i do think certainly if you're starting a new project with a client there's a huge amount of trust and expectation and possibly trepidation with a client when they hire you and when they start working with you and that's i want to talk about this kind of um hiring process and and how people will actually choose and the trust that they put in you a bit, a bit later on yeah. But that's the kind of thing I think where no matter how we're feeling, you need to get up on a Monday morning with a new client and go, right, you know, I'm going to take on the world. Oh, big time. No matter, no matter what you're really feeling. And that's why I would be a little wary about tweeting or writing about, you know, how I'm feeling about stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. Honesty is fantastic, but not sharing something isn't being dishonest. So I think, I think there's honesty and there's oversharing. There's honesty, openness, and oversharing. And I think it's really important to balance all those with, yeah, professionalism. And you've just got to look after your, 
you've got to look after yourself, but also if you're running a business, that's a, that's a huge concern. So if you're sharing things that could be detrimental to your new leads or, or you know, existing client relationships, then I think professionalism trumps openness there. Let me do our final sponsor for this week, cool. which is Antitype. And I've really liked talking about them because Antitype is a new design tool that's being created for UX designers by UX designers. And that sounds cool. So I'll tell you some more. I'm listening. Put simply, Antitype is a UI design tool that helps you to express your visual design, interactive and user experience design ideas to developers, customers and users all through one single file. And I think for a long time, there's been a real need for a web design in inverted commas tool, something that's been made specifically for designing for the web. And Antitype's that type of tool. It's designed as a UI design tool from the start. In fact, one example of this is that when you design with Antitype, the UI elements that you're working with, they're organized in a hierarchy. Right. It just makes perfect sense, unlike layers. Yeah, I'm on the site now. Organizing elements this way makes something else possible too, which is really cool, really brilliant. And they call this thing automatic layout. Okay. And I saw Tim Van Damme tweeting about that this week, wanting something like this in sketch this week, Mm. because I think we've all suffered from this. You're working on a design and you need to add an element in between some others. And that means that then you'd have to spend time nudging the position of loads of other elements on the page. Well, not with Antitype, because what you can do is you can add or remove any element and Antitype will reflow the design, just like on a web page. That's fantastic. And it does it automatically. So Antitype has this feature in there, Tim. A feature like that's huge. I don't do any design work, but one of the things I frequently come up against or yeah, experience when working with designers is when you're working in a tool like Photoshop, Sketch, whatever, experimenting with designs is is difficult. It's expensive. It takes ages to move stuff. It takes a long time to nudge things. So yeah, something like that that just reflows a uh, a UI document. That's huge. Well, I think that that feature alone makes Antitype worth the money. Yeah, I'll have to take a look. It has responsive design, web, web design tools built in. Antitype's layout engine automatically recalculates the size of design elements and different widths, and you can specify whether elements resize or show or hide at different breakpoints. And that means that you can design a responsive website or an application in just one file on one screen rather than several. Very cool. I was sceptical about it, but it actually really does work. And there's a lot more. With Antitype's interaction features, you can easily demonstrate the feel of a design by defining actions, events, widget states, and change screens. And speaking of widget, Antitype ships with more than 400 widgets for all major platforms, and there are more free widgets and examples available from their user community. Interface elements, buttons, sliders, controls, you name it, they've got it, and they all make rapid prototyping much, much, much easier. So I could go on. Antitype's available now for 129 of our British pounds. Big Liz. For a tool this good, that's a really good price. So go to unfinished.bz slash antitype and use the offer code unfinished before the 31st of October and you'll get 15% off. But don't forget also they have a free 30-day trial. So what you should do now, click the download link. If you want to support the show, support Antitype. Click the download link, and that's Antitype. Very cool. So, yeah, this whole kind of uh, 
kicking off a pro project and being hired uh, that's something else that i've been thinking about this week because i'm writing a new talk where's this for there this will be for beyond Telerand, and i'll be giving it at the webbies and uh, it'll probably evolve into my talk mainly for next year but it's it's about really what we as a web design industry can learn from advertising Mm -hmm. and the way that some you know some of the things that have been done historically in advertising and some of the things i've been learning about about advertising i think can really benefit how we approach things in terms of web design yeah sounds interesting well, I, I don't know. Nobody else seems to be really talking about this kind of stuff right now. So I've been doing a lot of reading and I've just been thinking, and this is not just about the stuff that I've been reading, but also about a couple of things that have happened with us uh, in the business this last couple of weeks. But I just think that the process that most clients go through to hire an agency or you know, even an individual designer or freelancer, man, it's broken. Yeah. I got some emails. This is going back about three months now. I got an email inquiry from, I don't mind saying who this is. I don't normally mention clients, but this is the Better Sequoid Tourism Association. Mm. Lovely bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And they did what everybody seems to do, which is to send an email out to umpteen people, me included, saying, we've got a website project that that we'd like you to tender for. Here is a... Uh, a checklist, if you like, of all the things that we'd like to uh, like it to include, <laughs> including things like, for example, I don't know, uh, a members section so that all of their tourism members, people that run B&Bs and hotels and cafes in the area can all have their own page mm-hmm. um, and they can all log in and, and administer that. And there could be booking links or whatever. You know what it's like when you get kind of a, a wish list yeah. of things to come through. It's basically things they've seen on other sites, which no one in the company has said they actually need or want. But, you know, we've got we've got everything. One of everything, please. I was concerned by this approach because uh, they'd mentioned in their document what their budget was, and it was very low. Mm. I mean, it was only a few thousand pounds. Okay, yeah. And whereas I might think, to, listen, to do this properly, you need to be 20, spending 20 or 30. Yeah, easy, yeah. Uh, they were obviously, um, you know, not of that opinion or not of that experience. So I wrote back to them and said, look, before we, before we give you a proposal, I'd like to talk to you about your process. And I'd like to talk to you about how I think you may be approaching this commissioning process in the wrong way. Mm. And that's not to say that you're doing anything different to, you know, lots of other people. Yep particularly within kind of, you know, local government or associations or whatever. But I think this is an opportunity for us to uh, to have a conversation. I respect you do this a lot, and I really like this. I like that you do this. I'm not quite there yet. Now, I can imagine that a group of people in this tourism association sat down and thought, right, we need a website. What do we want on it? And what they did was they designed the website in their head. <laughs> they thought about the number of pages that they wanted they thought about the functionality that perhaps that site should have. So they would put things on the, the, uh, the, the email that said, you know, we want a search facility, for example. They would say, we want booking features. But of course, that's so open. Yeah. Um, it could include, I mean, does that include credit card payments? Does it include just, you know, links to other people's websites or booking services that they already have or whatever? So vague. 
So I, I wrote back to them and I said, look, I want to have this conversation with you because I think that actually with your lower than average budget, and I think it's always important to say that, mm-hmm. I think that rather than getting people to compete against your checklist of, of nice-to-haves, we should really be crafting a beautiful-looking website, something that perhaps is more akin to a magazine. Yeah. Something which is, and I know people hate to hear that, brochureware. I mean, whoever whoever coined that phrase, I want to punch them in the head because it's... <laughs> it, does, it does demean it a little bit, It's it? so demeaning. You know, we can produce something which is so beautifully enticing that people are going to want to come to Betis mm. um, without it necessarily having the structure or the form or the content or the functionality that you think in advance a website should have. Mm-hmm. So we had a conversation and I then put a proposal together based on that. And I thought, to be honest, for eight to ten grand, you could actually produce something really beautiful. Yeah. And something which, because, you know, it's North Wales, it's Snowdonia. You, you can't go wrong with scenery like that. Betis itself is a beautiful place. I love going there. And you could produce something which may, it might have a, a more conventional component Mm-hmm. in that there may be conventional listings of B&Bs and hotels. Yep. But actually, that's actually very easy to do in something like Perch. But the other side of things, instead of thinking about pages, you know, about and the area, destinations and activities and all the stuff that people have, <laughs> every single tourism place puts in, mm-hmm. let's think about this in a slightly different way. I tailored my proposal and what I thought that they should have to the budget. Anyway, didn't hear anything back. Got an email back this week to say, sorry, you've not been successful. It wasn't a rude email, but, you know, it was the standard kind of, okay, let's get this guy out of our hair. So was the um, the the point which you tailored a nice proposal to them, was that dialogue or was that still complete monologue? Was that your initial reply? No, that was that was our initial reply. Oh, okay. They weren't quite so open about having a, you know, a dialogue, but that was, you know, that's sometimes fine. And I didn't spend a lot of time actually writing, coming up with ideas. I didn't spend a lot of time. I didn't certainly come up with any spec work. Mm -hmm. It was literally, there is a different way that you can approach this project, which will give you something better than you have asked for, which we think would be more appropriate and more successful than what you've asked for, that you can have with your, for your budget. Yeah. So if we quote, we're not going to be quoting against your checklist. We could be creating something which is very different. And it was about setting the right expectations. Anyway, so they came back to me and said, you didn't get the job. And I wrote back and I said, uh, and in the email that, to say that we didn't get the job, they said, yeah, you know, your, your budget was uh, you, you, you took more expensive than we wanted to, to spend. Mm-hmm. And there have been some other f- things that have changed about the project. So I did that thing that I don't suppose you're supposed to, I think you're not supposed to do, which I wrote back to them. <laughs> And I said, thanks for letting me know. Could you let me know what changed within the project and what your actual budget ended up being? And they wrote back and they said that their budget was £4,700 plus VAT. And the thing that had changed was that they no longer needed a booking system and members section, blah, 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 blah. Uh. And at this point, I, I mean, I just had to write back. And I just had to write back and went, your, your commissioning process is completely broken. Yeah. If you had not had such a checklist of features that you were asking for that you, know, you asked people to quote against, you could have ended up with something even for 4.5K, let's face it. You know, 4.5K could be a really good week's work for a good designer. 
mm-hmm. you could get a really lovely piece of work for that budget. Yeah. If you would only approach the project in a, in a different way, in a more sensible way, and you'd have perhaps listened to some kind of criticism of that, of that process. Yeah, yes, sir, right. This happens. Uh, it's completely broken. You wouldn't go for like a, it'd be very, very unusual. You'd go to a travel agent with like a list of needs a pool, needs this, needs this. You'd, you'd go with like an idea of, could we really fancy something relaxing, but different? You'd have a much more invested, interested way of finding things like that. When it comes to web projects, it is just like, Buzzword bingo, yeah, carousel, I've heard that word before, we need a carousel, we'll need a, a members area. It's a very sterile and, yeah, broken way of doing it all. Well, here's how, and I've been thinking a lot and writing a little bit about this thing this week, and I was thinking about when a client comes to you for the first time, they can come to you in with a number of different things. Now, sometimes a client will come to you and they'll just say, hey, Andy, or hey, guys, we have a, a design project that we'd like to talk to you about. Um, would you like to talk to us? Mm-hmm. And there's no expectation there. There's no kind of predefined solutions. There's no detailed information. It's literally a, you look cool. We're cool too. Let's, Let's have a conversation. Yeah, that's nice. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you will get what we got from Better Sequoid, which is, some form of, I won't even call it brief, I'll call it a loose request for proposal. Yeah. In which somebody will have put down two or three pages, and it always starts off with the same stuff. And I reckon, I've got this theory, that because so many web designers have pushed request for proposal templates on clients over the last few years, Mm. you know, download our RFP thing or fill in our RFP thing online, that every client thinks that they should structure their contact information in that same format. So they all start off with exactly the same thing. They also, you know, our company or our organization does this, our customers are this, we're looking forward to et cetera, et cetera. They structure this information exactly like RFPs. Mm-hmm. And they give you stuff which sometimes it includes uh, solutions to problems that you don't even know you've already, you don't even know you've got them. Yes, yeah, yeah. you haven't started. Like, we want a search or we want a members area. Do you really? It's usually because certain sort of competitor has one. Yes, so they would have looked at sites. And I said that this week, actually, because often what these RFPs all also include is a sites we like section. Yeah, yeah. And a little bit controversially this week, I said on Twitter, you should just ignore that. Just never even acknowledge the existence of the sites you like section. Because they are like the photos of slick haircuts that you see outside a barbershop. Yeah. You, uh, uh, yeah. If I went into a, a barber's with a picture of the phones and said, I like this, it's the barber's job to say, yeah, but you will look like an idiot like that. You, know, you might like this, but it's not appropriate. It's not suitable. And it's the same for, you know, a client says, oh, we like this site. Well, you know, one, why do you want to look just like your competitor? Surely you should be differentiating yourselves. And two, that's not actually a particularly good site. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're more, usually more harm than they're worth. And you can end up, I imagine, using them as a bit of a crutch. Oh, well, I'll just copy this site, put their brand colors on, easy, done. 
Well, some people might do that because they think that, oh, well, if I, if, if I put together like a Franken design from elements of all of the things that they like, then I can't really go wrong. Did you just say Franken design? Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Never heard that before. Well, you've heard of Franken build. No, no. Oh, I've wow. Of, no, no, here we go. Look at this. It's obviously not, not reached leads yet. Every day is a school day. But I think that these kind of requests for proposals are just incredibly common and what that means is is that you are being judged as a designer a developer an agency freelancer whatever you're being judged on your ability to pass the test that the rfp sets Hmm. okay so what because what do they want they're not asking you to open up a conversation necessarily they're basically thinking that oh well i've given them enough information to be able to give me an estimate give me a quote so and i expect that what a lot of developers and designers do is they just go yeah fine i can do that and it'll be x thousand pounds and they'll just they won't even have a conversation with the client they'll literally go okay i'll send something back we never do that yeah we literally always always pick up the phone and try to uh pick the bones out of an rfp like that the problem with things like that is you're in you instantly feel just like a supplier and i've I really enjoy working alongside and with companies and I don't want to be jumping through their hoops right from day one. You know, I don't want to feel like they've just anonymously or, or not anonymously, but you know, just gone out to X amount of people and said, right, you're all competing. Um, you know, whoever jumps the highest gets it or, you know, whoever's the cheapest gets it. And it instantly feels like a, almost like a dirty relationship. I, I enjoy meeting people, chatting, discovering what their problems are and working together to solve them rather than being told, we, the non-experts, believe our problems to be this. Therefore, the solutions our marketing team told us are these, and you can just come and tie the ribbons together at the end. And it just doesn't feel particularly nice to me. This is the other thing that happens. This is the third thing. I mean, they either come to you with a, with a really open request for conversation, they'll come to you with a looser RFP, or finally they'll come to you with uh, a complete set of documentation. Now, that could be that they've already had some you know, wireframes done. They could have already worked with a UX company completely independently. They could already have developers lined up, and they somehow want you to slot into the middle of a bunch of people that you've never met mm. halfway through a project that you know you didn't start. It just seems to me as though the whole kind of process of hiring somebody, people think that maybe buying a, a, buying web services or you know commissioning creative services is a bit like buying a product, yeah. and you can just get a price for it and move on. And they make obviously price is an important factor, but they make decisions based on that rather than on relationships or quality of, of, of work. I had uh, had an inquiry through late last year. And it was a startup from the UK, a startup that, you know, it's not a well-known startup. They were really, you know, just starting up. And they, um, this, this was in, like, it was a, a funded company. So they had cash and, uh, they got in touch with, you yeah, we need this, this, and this, and it'll be loosely this kind of stuff. And we need this kind of thing. Um, how much will it be? And I got a history of working product. So I was fairly well equipped to make decisions about, you know, longevity kind of stuff and actually you know working because you have to use the word brochureware again this was definitely a product site it was an app it wasn't a, a brochureware-esque site so i got together with a software engineer friend of mine because they knew they needed to hire software engineers front-end engineers and we got a quote together and it was very extensive and it was very you know okay given the you know loose outline you've given us and all this blah 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 and we sent the quote back and they just came back with um 
your individual day rates are a hundred pounds more than even the next cheapest person. And that happens to be an agency and all this. And it was a really kind of, they were just chasing price and you, they'd kind of almost felt like they'd brushed the consideration, like your know, architectural concerns. My friend had looked into different APIs and worked out, you know, before we'd even been able to say yay or nay to the project, he was already researching complex things to decide how best to do it and therefore how much it might cost. And all we got back was basically, yeah, you're way too expensive. Oh, this isn't this. And I just, I'd replied with, well, I've got no interest in, in being cheap. I've got no interest in being the cheapest person for any project because I, just, I want to be the best. If that makes me the most expensive, then so be it. If that makes me not the most expensive, that's fine. And end up getting the work off the back of that. And they replied with, yep, you've got the work. Ah, brilliant. I mean, this is the thing. You, you mentioned that your software partner had spent a lot of time researching stuff and coming up with enough information to be able to formulate a price mm. and to demonstrate that you understand what somebody's asking for. You know, and you understand the scope of the job. This stuff can take, actually, it can take a lot of time. It definitely and can. For a lot of us, time is money. And if you're spending that time before you've been hired mm. as opposed to after you've been hired we never know whether that's going to be you know, wasted time or not and there's a certain amount of what we do which we'd call kind of opportunity cost you yeah. know we have to put out something to get a, a bunch of things back mm -hmm. but at the end of the day sometimes we're asked to be starting to solve problems before we've actually been officially given the work yeah and i think that this is wrong i wonder sometimes about how clients should commission and decide to work with an agency or a designer or a developer without asking them to actually start the the work prior yeah you know, there's a certain amount i mean obviously you know we need to demonstrate competency it's almost like um programming questions or quizzes you know in, in interviews in job interviews where you're asked to do some whiteboard programming well, it's, it's, do you know what it's actually like? It's sort of like that. But what it's actually like is um, asking, let's imagine that, you know, you were a software company hiring and you had a problem. You didn't know how to, I don't know, scale your database. Yeah. Um, you didn't, you hadn't answered that question internally and it was a conundrum for you. So what you thought you'd do is you'd hire a bunch of people and in the interview, you'd ask them how to scale the database. Yeah. Um, which I know that kind of stuff goes on. Oh, definitely. Um, which I think is a bit unfair. It's horrible. We're often asked to work on specifying something um, before we've been given the job, whether that's just to provide an estimate or whether it's to prove kind of competency that we've understood what's in the RFP. Mm -hmm. um, whereas actually, there are other ways, I think, that clients should choose to work with agencies uh, or developers or designers and ways in which that I think we need to drive it the other way. We, us agencies, designers, developers, we need to actually be going, no, hang on a minute. This is how you need to run your commissioning project. Big time. So clients will obviously need to know that you are affordable and roughly potentially how much something's going to be. So if they do come to you with a rough kind of RFP, then you could quite easily say without having to do, you know, weeks of research you could actually say we think that this is going to cost between 30 and 50k mm -hmm. if that's within your budget expectations let's carry on having a conversation and you know you might have only spent 20 minutes looking at that 
that instantly opens up a dialogue, doesn't it? Rather than just being, we're going to give you massive information overload and you've got one chance to give us the answer we want to hear. Otherwise, exactly. And, you know, we did a, a proposal, I'm still waiting to hear, but I'm not hopeful, a proposal for a big London council recently, which mm-hmm. their RFP was so comprehensive that they wanted, you know, an answer on every page. The actual formatting of the reply was so prescriptive that you fear that if you didn't do it in exactly the right format, you would be instantly disqualified. And I know that Mike Montero in his book has actually said, in his Design as a Job book, has actually said, listen, if you get those kind of things, just don't even play. Yeah. You know, just don't even play. But the other aspect about being being hired is actually finding people that you want to work with and the relationship side of things. And I was actually reading, there's a book, it was written in the 1960s. I uh, wrote a little blog post about this this week. But if you can get a colder copy of this on Amazon, it's pretty cheap. It's kind of a bit out of date now, but there's some still good, some things in it, some good things in it. David Ogilvy wrote Ogilvy on Advertising. Yeah. And in there, he wrote this open letter to somebody who's choosing an agency. Did read your blog post about this. Got some notes about this. Now, you know, he said, dear sir or madam, because he was, he was very formal about that. If you've decided to hire a new agency, permit me to suggest a simple way to go about it. Don't delegate the selection to a committee. They usually get it wrong. Do it yourself. He said, start by leafing through some magazines, tear out the adverts that you envy and find out which agencies did them. Watch television for three evenings, make a list of commercials you envy and find out which agencies did them. Well, it just makes perfect sense. You know, we can apply this principle to websites. Yeah, yeah. But what people do is they, you know, they'll Google Web Designers North Wales and then they'll come up with a list of... (laughs) no. A list of people that they contact. And actually, you know, finding the work that you really admire, thinking, I love that Nest site. Hmm. I wonder who made the site for Nest. Yeah, yeah. Something along those lines. I think that that's definitely the way that we should approach things. And what he said was, if you make a list of, of which agencies did them, then you've got this list. You can find out which ones are working for your competitors and thus are unavailable to you. Because obviously, you know, some agencies don't want to have two feet in, you know, interest, in yeah. one account, conflict of interest. So then you've got your shortlist. And this is where it gets interesting. He said, meet the agency and his creative director. Yes. Okay, because it's this. He could have said her. Right, you know, her <laughs> creative director. And make sure the chemistry between them and you is good. Happy marriages fructify, unhappy ones don't. So basically, he's saying, listen, I'm going to find work that I really envy, that I wish that we could have. I look at websites that I think, these are brilliant. Mm. I will try to find out who did them, and I will ask to speak to those people that are in charge of those agencies. Now, this is not the same as the sites we like thing. I tweeted about this and about the sites we like thing this week, and people got confused. Because when I said that you should ignore when people write a sites you like section, right, mm. that you should just ignore that. But then somebody said, well, what's the difference between asking your clients? And it's not asking your clients. This is like, you know, me as a, as a potential client going, who's making the work that I like? Yeah, I don't like this site. I like this agency's work. And then meeting with the people so you're not you know you're not asking somebody to uh to jump through a hoop or pass a an rfp test it's not like you're just sending them something out of the blue going here's a job i mean i like it this is this is what i think right i think that when a client just sends out you know a word document with an rfp in it um, to a whole bunch of different agencies i reckon it's like 
holding a big fat steak over a cage of hungry dogs. Yeah. And the one that grabs the steak, you know, fastest or quickest or is the winner. Is the winner, right? That's that's how the, the, the regular uh, commissioning process works. I um, see it as being comparable to speed dating. Yeah, I don't I, I can't imagine many long term fruitful relationships come off the back of speed dating where you're just quickly it's all about quantity, you know, sending RFP out to twelve agencies, it's like sitting in a room full of people and just trying to get find the best person with thirty seconds of conversation. And it's I don't think anything especially client services, which is essentially what we do, I don't think you can have a fruitful client supplier relationship based on something as sterile and lifeless as as the the process that seems to be winning at the moment or the the most common. I like that analogy. And then what Ogilvy goes on to say is ask to see each of the agency's six best print ads and their six best TV commercials. Well, obviously, you know, this is the 60s. So we're talking about web work. And then pick the agency whose campaigns interest you most. And this process seems ideal to me. It sounds much more like a job interview mm-hmm. than it does a test that you have to pass. What I like about it is instantly it makes the client do some work. It makes the client realise that this isn't just someone who's there just to, just to please you and do everything you say. You're not hiring a yes man or woman. You're actually, it's a two-way street. And Ogilvy's approach, because I read your blog post, the thing that struck me the most is it instantly lets clients know that you, know, you have to do some work here as well. It's up to you as well as your supplier to make sure things go well. Yeah, because, you know, it's not asking somebody just to pass a test. You know, you're not being judged on how well you've passed those kind of challenges. Mm-hmm. You're being judged on your personality, yep. you know, and how well and how professional and, and everything you approach dealing with them. But also, it's about your past performance. And this is another thing that often comes up in, in, in RFPs. People, even if they're not asking you for spec work, they'll say, you know, could you give us some ideas as to how you'd solve this problem? Yeah. Well, hang on a minute. I might have solved this problem plenty of times before, or I might have solved a similar problem, or I might have solved a completely different problem, but I would have used the same principles to do so yeah. in the work that I've actually demonstrating in my portfolio. Yeah. And I can talk to you about how about those jobs and about how we did them if I'm sitting now with you face to face, which of course is a brilliant opportunity for, you know, trust building and relationship developing and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to me that this is by far the best way to hire an agency. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually put a stake in the ground, which is to say I will never, ever again produce a quote based on an RFP. No, that's good. I worked with a client recently. because all my work is consultancy and, and training stuff now. I don't actually do much dev work. And the client actually asked me, you know, Harry, it's all well and good saying, yeah, we should have this, this dev process. But what if we can't do that for the client? You know, what if the client doesn't want to sign off prototypes? And I just told this client, well, look, you need to change that. Maybe have on your site something like a, a rules of engagement or some kind of let the client know what your process is because they're not going to change it. No client's going to come to you and say, well, we only want to work exactly how you want to work. It's just not, it's very uh, unlikely that's going to happen. So yeah, I think putting the stake in the ground and being, creating a change from the inside out is, is what needs to happen. 
Well, I think that my process from now on when we receive an inquiry is to say, you know, our projects start at and our average project is yep. something like this, which hopefully, you know, puts the right expectations, mm-hmm. gives the right expectations. And if anybody is looking for, you know, a cheap job, then that's not us. they'll know that they've found, uh, they've, they've, they've found the wrong company. Yeah. And from that point, once that kind of test is passed, really, um, then, and once we're able to have a conversation, because, you know, having a, a five-minute conversation with, with a client on the phone, I think is incredibly important. Even, you know, everybody, every inquiry that you get. Yeah. You don't know how even the vaguest inquiry is going to come out. We got a, um, an email earlier on this year, sort of, you know, January, February time, something like that. And literally, the subject line and the, and the contents of the email were, do you use Twitter's bootstrap? Brilliant. That was it. That was all the email said. And the guy didn't even have a signature on his email. Yeah. But, you know, I could check the URL, and I went there, and it's a software company, and I thought, okay, well, you're not just, you know, a bunch of nobodies. You are actually a company that makes a product. I will call you. Mm-hmm. And having a conversation with the guy told me that, they had a product that they'd done the front end in Bootstrap. They needed design help, and their first thought was, "Well, let's find somebody that that, that uses Bootstrap." Yeah. And it turned out that we didn't use Bootstrap at all. We completely changed everything. Nice. And that turned out to be a really lovely project this year. Unfortunately, well, I don't know if "unfortunate" is the right word, but that project may have never come off if it weren't for you picking up the phone. No, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of people may have just been like, this is spam, or no, I don't, I won't reply. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of the client's fault that that came about, and you you managed to save it by you being the one to pick up the phone. But it's just completely broken. I think people just approach it, not understanding the gravity of the situation, or not understanding, oh, there's just so much wrong, it's so broken. Well, what I think that we're going to do is pick up the phone. You spend five minutes talking to a potential client. And within that first five minutes, you will have a conversation about price. Yeah. Because there's no point in going any further. There's no point in being cagey about it and stringing it along until you've had a couple of emails or, you know, one or two telephone conversations. You need to deal with it right away and say, look, from what you told me and, you know, the limited information that I have, I would expect that you need to be spending somewhere between, I don't know, 10 and 15,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? And they'll go, yeah, that sounds like you know, pretty much what we were thinking. Yeah. Or they'll go, oh my God, I didn't think it'd be that much. I thought it'd be 500 quid. Yeah. At which point you know that, you know, you, you've just wasted no five minutes and there's no point continuing. Exactly. However, what you don't do, and this is another poor, this is another thing about bad briefs and bad RFPs, is that you don't know, like the better sequoid thing, it's too easy. In fact, it's lazy just to build a quotation or build a website based on somebody's RFP. Mm-hmm. There is probably going to be a much better solution, a more creative solution that they haven't thought of, right? Yeah, because it's not their job to think of it, exactly. Exactly, it's our job to think about it. But the point is, is that the thinking about it should not be free. The thinking about it should be part of the design process. Yeah, so that's this spec work kind of thing. You know, I don't agree with spec work. I think it's, I just don't think it's a good idea. This is what I've been really struggling with this this week. And actually, Tom from Newegg, who I'm going to get on the show in a couple of weeks' time, because he's got some really great ideas about this, suggested that actually, at this stage, you can quote for writing a brief and 
the brief is not the functional specification. This is what I think a lot of people get wrong. Mm. A, br- a, a brief is not we want these buttons, these links, these pages. Yeah. The brief is we sell T-shirts and we want to sell more of them. Yeah, the brief is the problem, the spec is the solution, and the product is the implementation. And what we, and the brief is not so much, not always just for the designer or developer, but it's also for the client too, mm. because it's a strategy that they need to follow, and everybody in the company needs to, you know, fall behind. It's like an advertising campaign strategy. I see it as a kind of a mission statement to use a bit of a uh, sort of buzzwordy term. Oh, I hate that. And everyone needs to, you know, having a decent brief makes sure everybody's pointing in the same direction. It means that the MD knows what problem's being solved. It means the people manning the telephones know exactly what work's going on. It means the designer, the developer, everyone is just pointing in the same direction. Tom was suggesting that actually the brief writing needs to happen once you've been hired. Once you've had initial meetings with a client, you know, once you've sat down with them and you should be saying in part of the sales process, okay, so do you want to work with us? That's a simple question. That's, that's the question that every web designer needs to ask before you've, you know, before everything else, you know, you know who I am. We've talked, you've mm-hmm. seen my work. I think I understand the problem that you're trying to solve. We don't know how we're going to get there yet, but I understand what the problem is. Do you want to work with us? Yeah. And they're going to go, well, Yes. Now, you haven't talked about money necessarily in any detail at all, right? Yep. But the client has already bought you. You're already hired. So now you can say, well, let, let's think about this this way. What could happen next, right? Well, you could say, well, the next stage is we're going to write a brief. We're going to work with you to write a brief, and that brief is going to take a week, and that brief, that brief writing is going to cost 4K. Mm-hmm. You can raise an invoice for the 4K right away as your deposit job done. If nothing else happens, you've got your 4K, you've written the brief with the client. Yeah. You know, and that's how to kick off a project. Yeah, I mean, and it separates the, the wheat from the chaff as well, I guess. Um, you instantly know that you've got a client who's as invested as you are. They probably care as much as you do. And they, because I think a lot of problems, especially with large companies, someone gets put in charge of the company website and it's just another thing on their to-do list. So it doesn't get their full attention and it means that everything's dropped on the shoulders of the developer, the designer. And I think that as soon as you approach, like, you know, like suggesting or, or this, this idea of, you know, charging to write a brief, the companies who agree to that way of working will understand completely the importance of what's going on. You'll instantly get rid of those people who are just like, well, look, the company website's something I've got to do. I don't really want to be in charge of it, but I've been put in charge of finding someone to do it. Can you just sort it? And I think that that would definitely help out with uh, laying the foundations for a respectful client sort of supplier relationship. I think the other thing that will happen when we become involved in writing that brief is that we won't necessarily be um, either we w- we won't be writing in solutions to the brief before we define what the problem is. Mm-hmm. And this happens all the time. Yeah. You know, somebody will say that they want a search facility or a member section. Um, <laughs> I love that. It's always a member section. Always a member section. Every single time. Um, so they're not. They won't be predetermining solutions. Um, and then the other thing is, and I, I, I think that this is this is something that John Hegarty in his book on advertising was talking about. People often use 
RFPs or they use briefs as a way to control the design process. Right. Because if a designer comes up with something which is fantastic, you know, but completely out there, amazing work, like unexpected work, something that could be revolutionary. Yeah. If the and fabulously successful. If the client doesn't see that, they can just turn around and go, oh, it doesn't fit the brief. Yeah. If you're hired to build a website, whereas actually you don't need a website, the client doesn't need a website, the best way of solving that problem is to design a fantastic email. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah? That's not in the brief. The brief um, is the problem, isn't it? By helping the client to write that brief, we don't close off the creative process. We open it up. It becomes like a platform for creativity hmm. and not a set of chains to bind it to the client. So in, in obviously in the tech world, the spec is a hugely important thing because the specs are fairly dev, usually a fairly dev-led document. But where creativity is concerned, like you say, it could be that they don't want a website at all. It could be that, look, your brief explicitly outlines the problem is you don't sell enough t-shirts you don't need a website perhaps you need to go and spend your money even if it's just being completely honest and saying you need to go and see someone who isn't a web designer and go go in a pop-up shop spend your money that way you know the brief is like like you say it's just outlining the problem basically i mean it could be talking about t-shirts that you come up with a completely different business method like those sites that only sell T-shirts for a day and they escape me now. And the names of these things escape me, but I've bought on several of them in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. And now that's not going to happen when the client is just saying, you know, we want a website to sell more T-shirts. Yeah. It's creative thinking that's come up with that fantastic solution. And that's where, you know, us as designers, we need to be involved in this kind of thing. So that's not going to happen if we just do what the client wants at the beginning, which, let's face it, most people are either inexperienced or unqualified to direct a commissioning process. Yeah. You know, they've either not worked with designers before or they've worked with them just, you know, once or twice. And, you know, they make T-shirts. And the T-shirts yeah. are fabulous, but that doesn't mean to say that they know how to sell T-shirts. Exactly. I mean, hell, I'd hate to uh, source a development team for anything I worked on, and I am a developer. You know, asking someone who's out of their depth or expecting them to do it well is it's a big ask. So this is something that's eating me up at the moment, mm. and it's going to be part of a talk that I'm going to give next year. Well, in fact, I'm going to give next year and I'm going to give it at Beyond Teleround and, and a few other places as well. Mm. Because I think that particularly when times are tough and Paul was saying last week, they are tough, actually. They're tough for us. They're tough for Headscape. They're tough for a lot of people that we know. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that we A, can get the most out of the client, but also that we're not wasting our time and the client's time in dancing around when we could be doing some work. Yeah, I think that's hugely important. I actually, um, out of all the inquiries I get, uh, about 25% of them, I just tell the client, look, go elsewhere. You know, I don't want to waste your time. I could easily waste your time, but, you know, I honestly think that you're better off, you'd be better serviced by so-and-so developer, go and chat to him, or, uh, you know, she'll do a much better job for this kind of thing than I can. So I think, yeah, wasting anyone's time is, is to be avoided, especially at inquiry stage. I think we should knock it on the head. 
people can follow you, Harry, you're on Twitter, you are... CSS Wizardry. Yes, you are. And there's me, at Malarkey, to ask questions and suggest topics. You can message this show on Twitter, at UnfinishedBZ. And loads of people did last week, which made me very, very happy. Or you can email me at hehas at unfinished.bz. Thanks again to our sponsors this week. They were the fabulous Antitype, Who's It and What's It, and Hover. Please, please, please support our show by supporting them. Amen.